The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and if you need one, reach out for the pew rack and open a blue Bible there with me to Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, we're opening up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're now in our, our fifth in a series in the book of Colossians that we've called Christ Preeminent, Christ over all things, Christ in all things. Uh, we're coming specifically to verses 13 and 14 this morning of chapter 1, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. As you're turning there, let me ask you, uh, citizenship. When I say citizenship, what do you think of? Uh, maybe you think of your uh, terrestrial citizenship. You think of yourself as living on planet Earth. Maybe you think of your national citizenship. You say I'm an American citizen. Maybe you think of your state citizenship. You live in the state of Illinois, Rock Island County, such and such a township. When I say citizenship, what comes to mind in terms of uh, an identification of who you are and where you are? Uh, when Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, he's writing in an age when citizenship was everything. When knowing to which nation you belonged was the most essential part of your identity, the Colossians would have been Roman citizens. Being of the most powerful nation at that time, it was a prideful thing to be a Roman citizen and a member of the place of Colossae, a member of that town, but largely a Roman citizen. If Paul were to ask the members of Colossae, how do you think of yourself? It's without question that they would say, I'm a Roman. One of the things that comes out in Paul's letter to the Colossians is that he provides instruction, teaching, encouragement, for the church that meets there in Colossae, of a way to think about themselves, not just with regarding their earthly citizenship, because at the end of the day, yes, it's true, Colossian citizen, you are a Roman. And yes, it's true, you are an American, and thankfully so, right? But just as you have an earthly citizenship, the Apostle Paul wants you as a Christian believer to recognize that you also have a spiritual citizenship as well. A citizenship that is unseen, but is even more important than the citizenship that you can identify with a national flag. Even more important that unifies you with citizens of that spiritual kingdom who are from every nation. So, what Paul has been doing in the book of Colossians particularly here at this introduction, and we've said for several weeks now that the introduction to Colossians actually runs all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Everything through chapter 1 through 2, 5 is all introduction, but one of the things that he's doing is that he is preparing to be able to provide instruction to the Colossian Christians, but what he's been doing in this section that we've been looking at now is that he is praying for the Colossian Christians, wanting them to know certain spiritual truths about themselves, to inform their lives in order to make them be a thankful people. A people thankful to be recipients of divine grace and mercy. He wants the Colossian Christians to feel deeply within their souls a real and living gratitude to God. And so he's been giving them this exhortation to thankfulness. He's literally trying to fan the flames of their gratitude in their hearts. And he does that by uh, telling them how he prays for them. That was what we looked at last week. The ways in which the Apostle Paul prays for these particular Christians. And by extension, how we can understand the Apostle Paul literally to be praying for us. Now we want to see what it is 
that Paul is moving towards as the ultimate reason for why we should be a grateful people as Christian believers, why our hearts should be overflowing with gratitude. And so what he's going to do here in chapter 1, specifically verse 13 and 14, is the Apostle Paul is going to recount again to us some of the most basic and essential truths in the Christian faith. Just the very foundation level truths that we as Christians believe about ourselves as individuals and about ourselves as the body of Christ. It's going to be again in verse 13 and 14 and we're going to be able to see that with two key words that are coming straight out of the text. So we're just looking at two key words here as we understand what the Apostle Paul is calling us to rejoice in and those key words are transferred and redeemed. Those two words are going to sum up for us Really, the entirety of the Christian message. And so what we want to do in our time, 2,000 years removed from the Colossian Christians receiving this letter, is receive this word for ourselves here in Edgington and remember what it is that we believe. Remember why it is that you and I should be a thankful people in light of the mercy that God has shown us. So that as Paul is trying to stoke the fires of Colossian gratitude that we might feel in Edgington, the, 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 the fires of our gratitude are likewise stoked and fanned into a wonderful flame where we feel deeply the mercy that God has shown us. So, we want to see that this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures that we might see that. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we open the Bible, Lord, help us to open it in faith, believing that what you reveal to us here is truth. And so because you gave your Holy Spirit to inspire Paul with these words, that that same Spirit might rest upon our minds to illuminate our understanding and rest upon our hearts to receive with faith that which you reveal here. Lord, in a time when the Bible is so often set aside or discarded or placed on the shelf, Help us to be a people of living faith in your word. And so speak to us now, we pray, according to that word in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, at verse 13, this is the word of God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write His truth on our hearts. Keep your Bible open there. I want you to make note of how Paul, having, having prayed for these Christians, is moving to this wonderful point of instruction. As he fans the flame of their gratitude, as he builds in them a working understanding of their identity and their citizenship, he explains what is true of them and how they should think about themselves and their citizenship and how the reflections of that citizenship should make them a thankful people in Jesus Christ. So again, these two words, transferred and redemption, very clearly in verses 13 and 14. What does he mean? Let's be explicitly clear. Key word there in verse 13, look at it again. He... That is, God the Father. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And the us that Paul is talking about is Christian believers. 
Paul has never met the particular believers in Colossae, but he speaks of them corporately as belonging to a people, a people of God. And Paul says there is a, a plural dimension to this. There is an us, there is a we, there is the, the me, the Apostle Paul says, me and my faith, and there is a you, you and your faith, but we are joined together as the people of God, and this is what God has done for us, for you, for me, for your children, for my children. This is what God has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So Paul is thinking about two countries, right? Two kingdoms. Two citizenships. That's clear, isn't it? Two countries, two kingdoms, two citizenships. Now I know that we have countries on our mind. We have two countries in particular on our mind this morning and we can't help it. Ukraine and Russia. And while you might be tempted to just lay that parallel directly onto this text, uh, just pause for a moment, that the kingdoms that Paul is talking about here are, are not explicitly earthly nations, but they are the spiritual kingdoms of the kingdom of God and this other kingdom. You see how he says it? There is the kingdom of God, and then there is the kingdom of God in relationship to another kingdom, an opposing kingdom. Paul says that kingdom is ruled by a terrible dictator. It is called, in verse 13, the domain of darkness. And the word domain there could also be translated as the tyranny of darkness. That there is a kingdom that exists in the world that is a kingdom, a tyrannical kingdom of darkness, Paul says. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Acts 26, when Paul talks about how he understands his ministry, in Acts 26, 18, he recounts his apostolic duty, his, his role as an apostle. And he says that he was, listen to this, sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And to turn from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. Throughout Paul's writings and throughout Paul's ministry, Paul undertakes his responsibilities realizing that there are two kingdoms in the world. There is the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The realm of darkness is a dictatorship where Satan presides with tyranny, and there he holds all those who do not know Jesus Christ in a terrible bondage of blindness and slavery. They are captives to this kingdom of darkness, this tyranny of Satan. And Paul says, moreover, there is another country, another kingdom, another citizenship that he calls again in verse 13, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Or more literally, it could be translated as the kingdom of the Son of God's love. The kingdom of the Son of God's love. I think that's it's a very beautiful description. The kingdom of the Son of God's love. It's not just that the Father loves His Son, that's true, but that God's love characterizes His Son and God's love towards His Son characterizes His Son and the way His Son rules so as to say it is a kingdom of love and light, of spirit and truth, of righteousness and joy and peace in opposition to this opposing kingdom of darkness, tyranny, hostility, war, unrighteousness, sin, ruled by Satan. Dear friends, the Bible says there are two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms provide a way of understanding spiritual citizenship for all people. 
Now, if you're drawing the conclusion, you should understand then that everybody, every single person in the world has their citizenship in one of these two kingdoms. There is no demilitarized zone between these two kingdoms. There is no neutral territory between these two kingdoms. No space between. You are either a citizen of the tyrannical kingdom of darkness or you have been brought into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And the good news is, is that everyone who is in the citizenship of the kingdom of God's own love through Jesus Christ, they are in that kingdom and they realize that they haven't always been there. That their citizenship has not always been in the kingdom of light, but they were once a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. The Bible says that there is a one-way course of traffic moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, where citizens come out of a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. That's what God does in the gospel. Paul is using this language of uh, transfer, deliverance and transfer from one kingdom to the other. And when he's doing it, he's, he's teaching in a way that likely the Colossian Christians might not immediately identify, but for Paul is very important. He's essentially saying God has, through Jesus Christ, instituted the ultimate exodus. Do you remember the exodus story from the Old Testament? Where Israel is in bondage to Pharaoh's nation of Egypt, and they are brought out by God's strong hand. The Apostle Paul is using language of kingdom deliverance to say that that Old Testament exodus is like a foreshadowing and an anticipatory preparation for understanding that God through Jesus Christ is going to bring about the ultimate exodus, not from the nation of Egypt, but from the kingdom of darkness. That God will deliver those who are enslaved in the kingdom of darkness and bring them out by the blood of the Lamb. Just like in the Exodus in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites were covered by the blood and so protected, the ultimate Lamb of God has been sacrificed and His name is Jesus. And by Jesus, we are transferred out, we are delivered from, we are exodused from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into freedom, from slavery into freedom. We were prisoners, helpless, powerless, in bondage, enslaved to sin, but we've been made alive. We have been transferred, Paul says, from one kingdom to the next. And I want you to just see how Paul's thinking about kingdom citizenship so informs the way the entire Christian life is lived. What is my citizenship? What is my spiritual citizenship? To what kingdom do I belong, we should ask. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? And how do we get there and how does it happen? Paul tells us this second word in verse 14. That we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And Paul says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed. Our transference from one kingdom to the next happens by way of, Paul's word, redemption. Redemption is one of those great Bible words. Redemption is a word that you need to know as a Christian. You need to know what it means and what it represents. The word redemption really 
comes in on the focus of the idea of shedding of blood through the freedom that is bought through a price, and that price is blood. Again, in the Exodus, the motif is the lamb sheds blood, and the blood goes over the doorpost, and the people who live under that doorpost are passed over. Their sins are forgiven. But in the greater scope, what it's talking about is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who sheds his blood, and by the shedding of blood, we are purchased, we are bought, we are transferred by way of a purchased price, and that price is the life of Jesus Christ. Paul says we have redemption because Jesus dies so we can live. Jesus died so that our slavery will turn into freedom. Jesus died so we are transferred and purchased from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what this whole concept of redemption means. Because he died, we live. Because his blood was shed, we go free. We have this in union with Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption. Notice how he also says, the forgiveness of sins. The reason why God has purchased, the reason why God has redeemed is in order that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. This particular focus, in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's be very clear. You know what? This world needs clarity, doesn't it? This world needs very clear articulation about what we believe the Christian gospel is. The Christian message is this. You are guilty in your sin. God is holy. And He cannot have fellowship with you in your sin. And so judgment must come and justice might be rendered and waiting for us. But this holy God who cannot have fellowship with sinners is also a God who is full of love and mercy. And so rather than require the payment of your debt, rather than require the payment of your sin upon yourself, He sends forward His Son to pay the price for you. That's what we believe the good news of the gospel is. That our sins are forgiven because a Savior has paid the price that we owe. Because a Savior has rendered payment on a debt that if it were to be collected upon me means that I die. But the Son of God in true humanity undertakes the payment of that debt, dies, and rises so that all who put their hope in His atoning blood, forgiving blood, redeeming blood, are they themselves forgiven. God treats His Son as if He were guilty, guilty of my sin, guilty of your sin, condemns His Son that you might be forgiven. So the guilty is cleansed. The guilty is pardoned. The guilty is forgiven. Purchased by Jesus' own blood and transferred from one kingdom to the next. Purchased. He forgives our sin forever. Do you believe that? That is just what we believe at the very core of who we are as a church. This is what we believe at the very core of the Christian faith. Now, I remember being 18 years old and going back to the church that I grew up in and serving in a youth ministry context, believing that message because I read it from the Bible, and trying to teach it to my students, saying to them, God is holy. You're a sinner. Jesus loves you, forgives your sin. Trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sin. And it is emblazoned on me that the church leaders of that church that I grew up in came to me and said, we don't go for that here. We don't believe that. We do not believe that. God loves you. 
just the way you are. Nothing needs to change. It's all wonderful. And what you're saying is mean and hateful. Dear friends, this is the good news. That in Jesus Christ we have a Savior. That you are not okay just as you are. You need a Savior. And you have one and His name is Jesus. If you would turn to Him. And Paul says that's what we have in Christ. A deliverance from the tyranny of darkness. By a redemptive price purchased to forgive our sins. This is the message that delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. That cheers the hearts of Christian believers. And that's why Paul is writing this here. He says... If you believe that, if you really believe that, that your sin is forgiven. That's why we do that in our services. You understand that? We repeat these, these gospel patterns of movements where we say we confess our sins, we hear of God's assurance, and we say, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Like, does that resonate deeply in your soul? That all of your sin really, truly is forgiven because you have a Savior who has died for you. You particularly. Transferred, redeemed. Christ has done it for you. He's done it all for you. There ought to be a reservoir of gratitude that that produces that nothing can drain. That nothing could possibly take away the overwhelming gratitude that we feel in light of the fact that we have been transferred, redeemed, forgiven. Paul says, that's true of you, Christian. That's why you should be overwhelmed, overflowing with gratitude because of what God has done for you. So what I want us to do with that is two things by way of application. I want you to think about yourself in this way. I want us to think about ourselves in this way as living in this spiritual kingdom. This kingdom that we have been transferred into where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing about it. You can't see it. You can only see it by faith. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. We see it by faith. It's spiritual. That is, it's a heavenly reality that has come to earth. But that kingdom has embassies. You know what an embassy is? It's an outpost in a foreign nation where we say that territory is the sovereign territory of that nation. Dear friends, the church, the church is the embassy of the kingdom of God in the world. The kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom. You can't lay eyes on it. It advances by faith. It's spiritual. But it has visible embassies. Visible outposts that fly the flag of Zion and say, Jesus is our king. That's what the church is. The church is the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. Why does this church exist? Edgington. This church exists to be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of God in the world. To say there is a savior, his name is Jesus. He offers himself to you freely, not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but for the transformation of your life. Come into this kingdom. Live as a citizen of this king. That's what the church is. So listen to the words, listen to these particular words from our confession of faith that explain this. It says this, The visible church under the gospel is not confined to one nation. 
but it consists everywhere in the world of people who profess the true religion together with their children. Two things to say about that. The kingdom of God is the embassy in the world. The kingdom of God has as its embassy in the world local churches, and those churches are not confined to one nation. The church of Jesus Christ is not confined to one nation. So, do you think about this? Today, earlier today, by way of time frame probably, but your brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine gathered or are gathering to say what? We are citizens of a spiritual kingdom. We believe in Jesus Christ. Have you seen the stuff that's coming out of Ukraine about the Ukrainian believers there? The church in Ukraine is, is very strong, actually. And they're meeting there, continuing to say that our hope is not in whether or not this nation continues. Though we long for it to, though we pray for its peace, and we're asking that the aggression stop, but we believe in a king that gives us a hope that extends beyond all earthly things to say that we believe that God has us in the palm of his hands. I saw videos of Ukrainian Christians singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. I can't speak their language, but I know the tune, and it stirred me so much because they believe that they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. The church is not confined to one nation. It is united together across all nations where people believe in Jesus Christ as he is truly offered in the gospel. And that means that the church is an active reality in places, far off places, that are only seen to us by the news and the church is an active place here in our own place. This particular visible congregation is the church of Jesus Christ, an outpost of the kingdom of God in Lower Rock Island County. It consists, our confession says, of everyone in the world who professes the true religion together with their children. That's what we're doing here. We're saying, look, like we really do believe this. We really do. That needs to be so clear in a world that we need to double down because we live in an age of skepticism and obscurity. People love to say, well, well, who could really know that? And why does it actually matter? And shrug their shoulders at the idea of truth and citizenship and sin and righteousness and all the rest. And they just say, well, pff, you know, whatever. They're going to be skeptical about the whole thing. Or they might say, you know, uh, you know, it's an obscure thing. How can we really hold on to that? And the church is a place of living witness to say, no, we, we don't want to be unclear about this. We don't want to be obscure and live in this skeptical reality. This is what we believe. We declare it together as an outpost of the kingdom to say, here is reality. There is a kingdom that you can't see, but you must see by faith alone. We must be clear about this. And you know what? I am burdened especially about that as I think of especially uh, young people who are, are living in an age, and I mentioned this in Sunday school, where the, the whole idea of Christian deconstruction is so popular, the idea of walking away from the church in this very kind of elitist intellectual way of saying, well, I'd grown up that way, but tut tut, that was cute. I'm moving on to more progressive ideas and more enlightened minds in an age when we can't take for granted that your children or grandchildren believe what you believe. You can't take that for granted. You've got to teach them. You can't assume 
that the successive generations are with you, but you should assume that they're going to be discipled. It's just a question of by whom will they be discipled and according to what standard and by whose truth. If it's not going to be you, it's going to be something else. The church of Jesus Christ exists in the world to proclaim there is a true king and a true kingdom that we enter by way of faith. It's glorious. It's freedom. Come out of the tyranny of your sin and into the light of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. I want us, dear friends, as a church to double down on that. To not be ashamed of it. And to not shuffle our feet looking down at the ground, all shucks. This is what we believe and sorry we believe it. I don't want that for us as a church. I want us with love in our hearts, with a compassion toward all people to say, this is the true king. That's what the Apostle Paul wants for the Colossian believers, to know their true citizenship. And dear friends, know your true citizenship and live for your true king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now for us here that we would be a people of your true kingdom. That though we can only see it by faith, Lord, let that faith be as true to us as sight that we might fully give ourselves to Zion and to Jesus Christ who reigns over all things. Lord, especially when we feel that we are a minority, especially when we feel that we are looked upon with derision. Remind us, Lord, that your kingdom reigns over all and that we have hope in the name of Jesus. Would you please bless us and our families, our churches, not only this church, but many other churches, both here in our nation and around the world who believe together in the same Christ and the same kingdom. Bless that, we pray, and receive glory from your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.